could stand for the reading of God's word. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, transitioning from the Beatitudes to the very next thing that Jesus says, which is an incredible encouragement and privilege for us as we think about what this means for us. I'll begin in Matthew chapter 5, at verse 13, and I'll read through verse 16. Jesus is preaching. These are his words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As you take your seat, I want you to turn in your bulletin to page eight, just a page or so over. And I want you to look at the middle of the panel. There you will see the mission statement of our church. Park City's Presbyterian Church exists to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in Dallas into the world. This is on display this morning. But next you're going to see something that is not always printed in our bulletin, but has incredible theological significance. It says ministers. Now this is important. It's easy to think the ones being sent are the ministers and the missionaries. It's easy to, to think that those who have been ordained as pastors, elders, deacons are the ones doing the ministry. But in our church, we believe in a theological truth called the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that the whole body of Park City's Presbyterian Church, we collectively are the ministers. I want us to read this together, this sentence right here in the middle of the bulletin. Ministers, together with full voice, the members of this church family who, in serving their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, extend his kingdom in Dallas into the world. So this is what that means. As you hear about trips leaving for Senegal and Zambia and the Bahamas and to another part of Dallas, you might think that's what we're doing. Those are our missionaries this summer. It's not true. It's partly true, but it's also true that you are on a mission trip every day. The home you live in is a mission field. Until your children, spouse, other relatives profess faith to Christ, that's a mission field. And even once they do, it's part of watching the sanctifying work of God in their lives. It's, you're a minister. The people who live in front of you, to the left, to the right, behind you, that's your mission field. When you get in your car and drive to work tomorrow, or when you get on a plane and fly someone else, that's your mission field. We are always, as his ministers, as his people, those he is sending out. And how is he sending us out? He tells us in this text, as salt and as light. We just went through the Beatitudes. <clears throat> if you're new to our church, we've been studying this for about two months. And we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for many more months, taking these words of Christ in this great sermon to heart. 
The Beatitudes are a list of characteristics that we've said over and over again are not optional for Christians. These aren't a souped up version or a deluxe version of Christianity. These are the things that are to be true and ordinary of every believer in Christ Jesus. And they're beautiful. And they would have been shocking. They would have been radical to the ear that heard Jesus say these things. And that word radical has really been robbed in so many ways. But it, what it means is to the core. So when I use the word radical anytime I'm talking about the core of something. And the core of Christ and his kingdom was a radical message, a radical kingdom. So that when he said blessed, which means happy in the deepest sense to the core of who we are, these would have been shocking things for the original audience to hear. Well, what comes next is also shocking because he has just said, blessed, happy are you when people insult you, revile you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He's talking about another kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of the world who despises him and will despise his followers. But then he moves in to this next phase of the Sermon on the Mount. Moving from the Beatitudes, his very first words are, you, and it really means you alone, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This morning I'm going to look at salt, next Sunday at light, and then in three weeks we'll kind of bring them all together. First thing you need to know about this is the way in the Greek language that this is put together really matters. The phrase that Jesus gives here, you are the salt, its mood is, the mood of the verb is indicative. And what that means is it's a statement of fact. You are the salt of the earth. It's not an imperative. An imperative is a command. Be the salt of the earth or become the salt of the earth. It's a command to do something. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is declaring who they are. It's indicative. You are salt. And now this is an amazing, privileged place to be. The living God speaking to those on that hillside hears them go through this list of beatitudes and then says, as you are these things, you are the salt of the earth. Well, here's what that implies. First of all, the earth is in decay. The earth is dark. So Christ uses these two metaphors to show something very significant about himself and his people. First is this, you're the salt of the earth. The earth is decaying. The earth is dark. Everyone who heard this metaphor would have understood immediately what he meant by salt. Because salt, as one of its primary functions, was to be used as a preservative. They had no electricity, therefore no refrigeration. They had no ice, therefore they couldn't preserve things that way. So what they did is they would take particularly meat and other things that would be an immediate process of decay and cover them with salt. The salt would be rubbed on and rubbed in so that it wouldn't spoil. Its natural function when carved, when cut, when stripped, is that it's going to immediately move towards decay. When I was in seminary, it was a really rich time. It was rich theologically, it was rich practically, it was rich relationally, and sometimes things happen that you wouldn't necessarily expect. One is that there are folks who go to seminary who actually are kind of like the class clowns. I, that was not me. You might think it was, but it wasn't. I was very serious. 
uh, too intense in some ways, but we had a classmate that just was known to play practical jokes on the professors, on other classmates, and nobody really wanted to get him back. But I did, but I'm patient. And so I waited. I waited until the very last day when he was unpacking his apartment to move to another city where he had received a call as a minister. That day, me and several other classmates and some of the students that were part of the youth ministry I was involved with were helping him load his U-Haul and his car. He had a person who was going to drive the truck. He would drive his car. So as he's unloading all of his things, and he's a bachelor, so you can imagine the mess. Sorry, that was a stereotype, but anyway, he was a mess. So as we saw all that was there, he began to clean out his fridge. Fridge was terrible. But in the freezer, he had some pretty good steaks. So he says, Mark, you want the steaks? I said, sure. I took two of them that looked great, wrapped them in a bag, kept them close. The other one I handed to one of my students. It was a huge T-bone. I said, stick this one underneath the, pass the driver's seat of his car. He did. A Volvo, 1976, orange. It was great. He slid the stake underneath the car. He said, why are we doing that? He said, because I'm getting him back. <laughs> well, he knew you did it. He'll know I did it. <laughs> what I didn't know is that he was driving to Huntsville, Alabama. He was going to leave his car parked there for three weeks <laughs> while he himself went on a short-term mission trip. Now, why are you reacting that way? Because you know what would happen. As soon as the frost on that meat began to thaw, it was moving towards decay. And as it sat in a steaming car for three weeks, 21 days, it wasn't becoming prime-aged beef. It was going through putrefaction. And he knew it as soon as he got close to the car, but he didn't know what it was. So he drove back, smelling himself, wondering what is wrong with my car. He finally found it, and I was his first call. <laughs> Meat is going to decay. Salt wrapped on, pressed in, packed around, will slow the decaying process. The world that we're living in, the kingdom of the world, Ever since the fall, Genesis 3 is in decay. It's dark. It's dying. And what Jesus says to his disciples is, you are salt. And what that first of all means is that we as his people are agents as salt that can preserve, that can slow the decaying process that can be used by God to transform something that is heading towards utter destruction. What a privilege that Jesus is saying, you are salt. You have the privilege of going out in my name and slowing something that is going to naturally happen because of sin. Because of sin, we see the decay all over the world. We see it in every sphere of our life. And because of who we are in Christ, he has placed us in neighborhoods, in classrooms, on boards, over companies, serving in companies, in churches, where we have the privilege of being salt and light. Light will come next week. But salt is this preserving agent. It's an agent that causes something that is naturally moving towards destruction to have that process slowed. And there's a reason why. And for us, the reason is Christ. There's another factor that moves into the reality of salt 
And that salt is not just a preservative, but it's also something that possesses flavor. They would have understood that as well. A little salt goes a long way. They would have understood in their own dishes that there were spices added and salt would have been one of those. Flavor is a big part of the Christian's life. So that when we think about being told you are salt, what that means is immediately, wherever we are, there should be the taste of something bright and beautiful and delicious that has to do with who we are in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, in writing about this, shares that the Oxford English Dictionary uses as one of its meaning for seasoning, zest. And this is what he says, seasoning society, I love that phrase, seasoning society, the decaying society, the decaying world, seasoning society is not a matter of being Scrooge-like personalities whose presence brings a pall of depression, and I love this phrase, and whose entrance marks the exit of joy. That should not be us. On the contrary, the presence of God's people should increase the flavor of life in many different ways. After all, we come to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, fellow students, as those who have been and still are in the presence of Jesus Christ, who has given us abundant life. Listen to this. Everything about us should express the attractiveness as well as the holiness of our Lord. Everything, everything, every place we go, every place we shop, every service we use, every driver that drives us, everywhere we go, the attractiveness and the holiness of Christ should be present everywhere, everywhere. If you are the first taste someone would have of Jesus, how tasteful is Christ? Do they see the radiant, zestful, abundant life in Christ in you and wonder how can you have joy in the midst of sorrow? How can you have hope in a world that is so dark and depraved? How can you resist talking badly about other people when everyone around you is doing that? How can you not laugh at an off-color joke? Because there is one who's living in me, who is the living God. And his life in me is full and abundant and maxed with joy, a joy that is truly unexplainable. That's what it means to be salt. But Jesus gives a warning, and you heard it. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Every one of us need to hear what's coming. When we are saved, truly saved, saved for all eternity, we have an assurance that once we are saved by God's grace and for his glory, we are always saved. One of the fruits of that reality is that there's salt in our life, that we are salt. 
But this side of heaven, while we will not lose our salvation, there will be seasons of time where that saltiness that should exist, that saltiness that once exists, isn't present. And when it's not present, we don't need to defend why it's not. We need to beg God for mercy and say, make us salty again. Make the fragrance of Christ, the taste of Christ coming from me bright and beautiful and attractive again. Well, how does it happen? How do we lose our saltiness? Well, there are two or three primary ways. The first one is this. We retreat from the world. We retreat from the world. The fear, the danger, the darkness, the pollution, all that is there, we see and say, I'm running from that. The monastics did it in the most extreme way. I'm going to depart from all of society. That is not what God is calling us to do. God is not calling us to be salt in a place where salt won't impact what is decaying. He is calling us as his people to be salt in the world, but not of the world. Now, I want to explain this because I think it's really important. All of us need wisdom. All of us, parents, grandparents, all of us need wisdom about what does that look like. But I want you to hear what God's word says so that you don't have wrong perspective on Jesus' words. In Matthew 10, the Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter 7. Jesus moves forward doing miraculous healings. And then we come to Matthew 10. Turn in your Bible or grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. I encourage you to bring your own Bible. It's not that heavy. Bring it Sunday after Sunday. Open it on your phone if you want to use that. Just don't read anything else other than the word during the service. But Matthew 10, the title above it is the 12 apostles. The next title is Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. So Jesus knows what he's doing as he sends out the apostles. Look with me at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So they were given power, apostolic power that we don't have, but they were given the same message, the same mission. Go and declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus knew in sending them out that they would be persecuted. Look with me at verse 16, a few verses ahead. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus knew that the mission of belonging to him and then being salt, being light, proclaiming his message would likely cost them greatly because it's his kingdom versus the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world hates his kingdom. He knows that. He knows that. Yet it's his way to send his people in his power to be that salt, to be that light. And he tells them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he's sending us out the same way. Being a Christian is not safe in the world, but it is the ultimate safety in all of life, including eternity. It would be a lie for us to encourage anyone to come to saving faith in Jesus and say, there are no risks. 
there are no risk. That would be a lie. There are great risk, but the cost of discipleship is not near as great as the cost of non-discipleship. That lasts for eternity. Some would say, okay, I see that Jesus called the 12 to move into the world as sheep amongst wolves, but that was just for the 12. It's not true. In Luke's gospel, we also get an account. Luke 10, turn there. This is titled, not Jesus sends out the 12, that's already happened earlier in Luke, but this is titled, Jesus sends out the 72. And the 72 that Jesus is now sending out were not the apostles. They were followers. They were definitely disciples. Here's what Jesus says. Look with me at verse 2. Luke 10, 2. And Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Same for the 12, same for the 72. And they go out, and they have power, and they do great things. When I told this group a few minutes ago, do not forget that the Lord is as interested in what he's doing in your life as he is the people you go to hold Christ out. Read further in Luke 10 later today, and you'll see the proof text for what I was saying. But for now, I want you to turn to John 17. Matthew's gospel records it. Luke's gospel records it. Now I want you to hear the prayer of Jesus so that we could never mistake that this was just for the apostles or just for the 72. I want you to hear what Jesus is praying to the Father about the world that his disciples and us are being sent into. Look with me at verse 14 of John 17. This is called the high priestly prayer. He says to his father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He could have, but that's not what he asked. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's our prayer too. We want our church to go to places where people hate Christians. We want this body to go to places where people do not uphold the name of Christ because they're the salt, which is Christ. There, the light, which is Christ, can be shown. And there will be dangerous people like Saul in the book of Acts, who was there giving his blessing as Stephen was being stoned. There are people that you know right now that give every appearance of hating God who will spend eternity with us in heaven because God has marked them and they're going to be saved. My guess is he's going to do it in his ordinary ways. That someone called by God will be courageous enough to be salt and light in a really dark place. Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now listen to this. Jesus is praying for you. We know that he's praying right now, but he's praying for you all the way back then when he was walking on the earth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for the ones who are gonna come to Christ when 140 of our missionaries short-term going overseas hold out Jesus. He's already praying for them. He's praying that they would not be taken out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil one. He's praying that we who are in Christ would not be taken out of the world, but would be protected from the evil one. That's Jesus' prayer. And he knows it's dangerous because he himself left to come to this earth as the incarnate one, knowing full well that this world would crucify him. So we lose our saltiness when we retreat from the world. We need wisdom in knowing how to do that, how to lead our families, how to lead one another, but it's never to retreat and no longer be salt. The second way we lose our saltiness is not from retreating, but becoming so like the world that there's no distinction. Paul said in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And then he says, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is the zest. His good, pleasing, and perfect will was that his son would come and die for us and be raised from the dead and reign as our king. No matter where God calls us into what different places of darkness and decay, we are never to conform to the pattern of the world. When we do, salt becomes ineffective. It becomes worthless. And it's not because salt itself and its little grain is suddenly not salty. That's not what happens. It becomes diluted. It becomes diluted by so many other things that mix in with it that the flavor is lost, that the preservation is lost. And so we know that whenever we move into the world, that which is dark and decaying, we move in as salt, holding these two things very dear. I will always hold up the truth and I will do so in love. Holding up the truth without love, sadly, is what so many today in the church are doing. And it is not full of zest. It is not flavorful. It is not attractive. But some would go the other extreme and say, well, I'm just going to love. And if truth comes up, well, I'll sprinkle some of that in. That's not loving either. Don't create a false dichotomy. We are to hold to the truth and we are to show love. But so often we conform to the pattern of the world and the saltiness dissipates, it gets diluted. We lose our saltiness when our schedules don't look any different than the world's. When we are so jam-packed with busyness that we have very little time for God and the things that matter most. 
We lose our saltiness when our anxiety levels are just as high as the world's, and it seems as if, what difference would it make if I believed in your God? The saltiness is lost when the same things that entertain the world in ways that are unholy and irreverent are the same things that entertain us. The shows we watch are the same. The jokes we tell are the same. The saltiness is lost when somebody that's not favoring our political position is being talked about and slandered and we, knowing we shouldn't do it, pile on instead of remaining silent. You can tell the truth, but you can also do so in love. You can tell the truth and not participate in something that is not language seasoned with salt. That's in Colossians. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt. That's when Christ in us, salt is attractive. When suddenly we're not behaving like the caricature of something that really isn't true Christianity, but we are present holding the truth sacred, but loving the way Christ did. He was the perfect example. We lose our saltiness by retreating from the world or becoming so deluded by the world that there's no distinction. There's one final way I'll mention, and that, that is we lose our saltiness when there is no flavor of Christ recognizable in our life. And what makes that happen most frequently is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, when we forget that it's grace by which we've been saved. And we are elevating ourselves even above the Lord. So can we get our saltiness back? By God's grace, the answer is yes. All of us this side of heaven are gonna have moments when we are not being the people God's called us to be. It might be because we're unwilling to engage the neighbor, the coworker, the classmate, the friend. Maybe it's just simply because we're too busy or maybe it's out of fear. It could be that we've retreated so far from the world that we don't even know any non-believers. That's not what God wants. Or it simply could be that our own walk with Christ has become stale. It just hasn't been the very essence of all we are. Christ restores that. And here's what happens. When God shows us grace Sunday after Sunday, day after day, when his mercies are made new each morning and you remember it's by grace, that makes you salty. That makes you flavorful. That makes others see something in you that's different because you know in order to have admitted there's a lack of saltiness in your life, you had to be poor in spirit. You had to be meek. You had to hunger and thirst for righteousness, trusting you would be filled. You have a blessed life. And when that grace is present, it is irresistible. When that grace is present, it's irresistible in your life and in the lives of others that God's showing it to. You are the salt of the earth. It's indicative. You are the salt of the earth. 
unless the salt has lost its saltiness. What joy to be reminded of these truths. What joy to know that if the saltiness is gone, cry out to the Lord. He will restore what only he can restore. Father in heaven, that is our prayer. We know between now and the time you call us home, we're gonna encounter so many people. And we pray, Father, that in every case, we would be ready to give an answer for the flavor that they see in our life, the flavor of hope, the flavor of security, the flavor of confidence, the flavor of humility, the flavor of Jesus. And Lord, where we have not been a good witness, where the saltiness has been lost and our witness has been worthless, forgive us, restore it now, and enable us to be the people that you say we are. We pray this by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.